We have been looking at major end-time events as we find them in God's Word, and we have been saying that the church age, the age in which we find ourselves presently, began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given to the fledging believers in Jesus in Jerusalem, and it kicked off a season of time that we do not know when it will end. It's a time, though, when the church, the ecclesia, those called apart from the world and self and Satan, are the primary vehicle of blessing and the redemptive plan and purpose of God. I believe that we may be near the end of the church age. I do not have a date. The scripture doesn't give me a date for the rapture return of Christ. But I do look around at various things in the current news that makes me wonder, are we near the end of this church age? As I mentioned, the church age will end with a a miraculous and wonderful quick event called the rapture of the church, uh, Latin rapturio. Rapture of the church means a catching up of the body and the bride of Christ. It happened in the twinkling of an eye less than a half a second. It largely will be missed by many persons when it happens, but people will notice that all the born-again believers around the earth are missing. They've not come to work. They've not paid their mortgage payments, etc. And so when that rapture of the church event occurs and the body and the bride of Christ, the church is airlifted out, two things happen. One is on heaven and one is on earth. For seven years, these two things concurrently happen after the rapture. In heaven, the bema, or the judgment seat of Christ, is an evaluation of all born-again Christians from the church age where Jesus will look at our good deeds, not our bad deeds. They've been paid for with his blood. But he'll look at the good deeds we've done while on earth, and he'll judge some to be wood, hay, and stubble. That is not rewardable. And others to be gold, silver, and precious stones, deeds that will be rewardable in a future kingdom. So seven years of evaluation in heaven of born-again believers, seven years on earth of unprecedented outpouring of God's righteous wrath against sin. Revelation chapters 4 through 19 tell us what's going to happen in that future seven years of tribulation. Both the Bema evaluation and the tribulation judgments on earth will end with the second coming return of Jesus, not to be confused with the rapture return of Jesus seven years previous. The second coming return of Jesus will be visible, Everyone on planet Earth will be aware that he's come. He will touch down on Earth at the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. He will walk through the Eastern Gate, which will be opened by an earthquake, and he will ascend the Mount to take David's throne, the Davidic throne that has been promised to the Messiah, and he'll literally rule and reign on planet Earth for a thousand years. King Jesus will first confine and jail Satan to an abyss or a pit, and for a thousand years, Satan was not free to deceive anyone on Earth. And then after the thousand years, Satan will be released by Christ's order so that it will be plain and clear that Jesus Christ can defeat Satan when the playing field is level. Satan will be released. He essentially will say the persons who are alive in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom, who wants to take Jesus off the throne? Who hates Jesus? Who would rather rule their own lives and not have Jesus rule their life? How many of you would like to do that? It says in Revelation 20 that those that would want to side against King Jesus after the kingdom will be innumerable. They'll be like the sand of the seashore. The Bible says that Jesus will defeat Satan. With the word of his mouth, he'll beckon consuming fire. The fire will consume all the humans that sided with Satan as opponents of Christ, and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire for a permanent, everlasting jail, uh, never to be seen again. That fire that comes to uh, defeat Jesus' opponents, human opponents, will also, by God's design, 
incinerate, burn up, melt down the present heaven and the present earth. So God will therefore make a new heaven and a new earth. We read about that in Revelations chapters 20 and 20, 21 and 22, and that will go on forever and ever. And those who know Christ as Redeemer, Savior, and Friend and Lord will uh, be part of that new heaven and that new earth. So that is a, a whirlwind look at things. We, last Lord's Day, we were looking at the great white throne judgment, which is at the end of the kingdom, thousand-year kingdom. We saw a few things I want to review quickly. We said that it's a great white throne judgment, great because there's no greater possible a judge than Jesus. It's white in that there's no judge that is more pure and perfect in his character or in his judgments. And it's called a great white throne judgment because King Jesus will mete out judgments by uh, commensurate with evil done by each individual, and those judgments will be fair. Those judgments will be uh, in line with the, the sins of the person sentenced, and those judgments will have an entirely crystal clear right motive. So we've got a great white throne judgment. Last week at the end of the sermon, we noted together that God is holy, live accordingly. God is omniscient. He knows everything, live accordingly. God is the ultimate judge, evangelize accordingly. Uh, persons don't get a second chance in what one church calls a purgatory. There's nothing of a purgatory in the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, there's no second chance after physical death to have the priest or your friends or family pray you out of purgatory. There's no such thing. It's appointed under man once to die and then the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. And so we need to share our faith. We need to share our Savior as the living bread uh, drama presented because what people do or don't do with Jesus Christ during their lifetimes on earth makes a very significant difference. It's a binary situation. Either you're saved or you're lost. Either you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. There's not, it's a binary situation like a light switch, on or off. Now, I want to take you to the principal passage on the great white throne judgment in the New Testament. It's Revelation 20, and I want to begin reading at verse 7 and then going through 15. Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years were completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As I said at the beginning, as I prayed, this is perhaps the most somber and serious and weighty uh, paragraph in all of God's word. 
And I want to just draw your attention first to start with back to verse 12. And I saw the dead and the great, the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things which are written in the books, according to their deeds. Every unredeemed, every unsaved, every unconverted person from the time of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to the very last unsaved or lost person in the millennial thousand-year kingdom, every single person who rejected Christ, never trusted him to be Lord and Savior, will stand before Judge Jesus at the great white throne judgment. Everyone. No one will be absent. And the judge of all will judge all who are not in his son, not in himself. And so Adam and Eve's Cain, perhaps the first God-rejecter of all of human history, he'll be at the head, perhaps, of the judgment line at the great white throne judgment. And those who died in wickedness in Noah's flood will be in the line. And those who worshiped idols and not God will be in the line of judgment. And Hitler will be in the line somewhere. And Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, will be in the line somewhere. By the way, you do know that Margaret Sanger's stated purpose for starting Planned Parenthood was to exterminate the Negro race. And Osama bin Laden will be in the line. And radical Islamic terrorist suicide bombers will be in this line. And cultists will be in the line, and false preachers who call themselves Christians and who are not, who twist the gospel into a message that makes them a lot of money, they will be in this line of judgment, etc. The very last Christ rejecter from the very last days of the millennium will also stand in the great white throne judgment line at the very back of the line waiting to be sentenced by Judge Jesus. In fact, every single other person not under Christ's saving blood will all be in the line to be judged and to be sentenced by the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. Again, looking at verse 12, I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, and I'll pause at the comma. Will you notice that it's all the dead that were not in Christ, the great and the small Christ rejectors, the famous and the unknown, the rich and the poor, the serial killer and the gossip, the sincere and the scoundrel, all of those who didn't take Christ as Lord and Savior by personal faith, will be in the line, will be sentenced to the lake of fire, hell, by Christ. Verse 12 also relates two important facts. First, there will be books, plural, in the hands of Judge Jesus. And second, there will be a book, singular, also in Judge Jesus' hand. The multiple books Record all of the sins of each of the persons who knew not Christ as Savior. Can you imagine that? You may ask, why? Why would there be these books of evil deeds for those who didn't trust Christ? Why would that be necessary? Well, it's certainly not going to be necessary because Judge Jesus doesn't have the details at his disposal, or he doesn't know something. He'll have these books 
for another reason, entirely other reason, because Christ knows everything about all of us, and Christ never has any forgetfulness or any confusion. Jesus Christ accurately knows all of the sins of any person who never has ever lived that's rejected him. And then how is that even possible? Well, it's possible because Jesus has an infinite mind, and he has an infinite RAM, R-A-M, random access memory. Jesus Christ has infinite RAM. And so the books containing the record of all the unpaid-for sins provide the basis for the sentences which Christ will give out uniquely, tailor-made for each and every person who is not saved. And if any unforgiven person has the audacity, the nerve, the foolishness, the pride to question or to debate or to protest or to disagree with Christ's sentence upon them, to a certain degree of punishment in hell, then there will be irrefutable record written in black and white of all of the sins which that particular individual has committed. Sins of thought, sins of words, sins of deed, sins of commission, sins of omission. It's all there. And Jesus will say, see, there it is. Infinite records of sin kept by an infinite-minded judge, Jesus, who has been informed by his infinite-minded Father, who has been everywhere at all times the Father has. And as it turns out, God keeps track of all believers' sins too. But according to both the Old and the New Testaments, because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, because of Jesus' cross and empty tomb, ultimately, the blood of Christ ensures that each of your sins and each of my sins are blotted out, deleted. Praise the Lord, deleted. Isaiah 43, 25, God is speaking and he says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Acts 3, verse 19, the apostle Peter in his sermon after Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead is recorded to have said the following to others, repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, end of quote. So your books of deeds has blank pages. All your sins have been paid for by Jesus, all of them. And so we move on. In verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, according to their deeds. Will you notice from this verse that the lost will be judged and sentenced one at a time? The verse says, each one. Will you notice, second, 
the lost will be judged and sentenced based on their sins committed, based on their sins committed. The verse says, according to their deeds. It is noteworthy, I believe, in our passage for this morning, that according to his works, that phrase, according to his works, is mentioned twice. In verse 12, and then again in verse 13. Friends, this means that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Hell will be hell for everybody who is there, but there will be certain persons who are confined to hell forever that will be even more severe. There are degrees of punishment in hell. There is another term in our passage which appears more than once here in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, and the term is the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the term here, and it appears three times in our passage, twice in verse 14, and then a third time in verse 15. The lake of fire is also known as hell. They're interchangeable terms. Very quickly, let me tell you in a quick fashion what God has bothered to tell us about hell in his book. This must be essential information, or God would not have given us it to us. Number one, hell is a real place. It's not a state of mind. It's not a difficult life on earth. It's a piece of real estate. It's a real place. Secondly, hell is forever. There are some cults that would have you to believe there is no hell because you cease existing when you die. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach annihilation. The Bible teaches resurrection. And so hell is forever. Number three, hell is total separation from God. Hell is the answer to the reprobate rebel's prayer, God, leave me alone. God says, okay, I will, forever. Number four, hell is total separation from all other persons who are there. You've heard people say, perhaps as I have, I don't mind going to hell because all my friends will be there and we'll have a big party. No, that's not the way it is. Hell is solitary confinement for each person who's sentenced there. No interaction with anyone else. Ultimate loneliness. Number five, hell is fiery conscious torment. Hell is smoke-filled. Number six, hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus consistently taught in the Gospels that hell is outer darkness and the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, conscious suffering. Number seven, hell is a place where one feels like they are always falling. Ever awakened from a dream with a sweat as I have? That you were falling in your dream and you didn't know where you were going to land or if you would land? That's the perpetual state of mind of a person in hell. Number eight, hell is filthy and it has a stench. Hell is out of darkness, according to Jesus. Hell is haunted by personal convictions and memories. 
You can know that the person who heard, heard a clear presentation of the gospel from you at your workplace and they went to their grave rejecting Christ is going to have eternity to regret that they didn't respond. They'll remember. Hell is never-ending just punishment. No breaks. No weekends. No holidays. Never-ending just punishment. Hell is hopeless. Utterly hopeless, as is every heart that banishes Christ from it. Truly, Revelation 20, 11 to 15 is one of the most sobering passages of all of God's word. How would you feel standing in that humongous line, waiting to be sentenced by King Jesus, Judge Jesus to a literal hell, how would you feel knowing all the persons ahead of you have been banished to the lake of fire, you've seen it, and your turn is coming? Would it not be terrorizing? Satan doesn't want us to think about this. Satan wants to lie, which is his character. He wants to twist. He wants us to believe there isn't a hell, or if there is, everybody goes to heaven he wants us to believe if we do believe there's a hell, he wants us to believe that you stop existing after you die. You're just annihilated, dead like a dog. Satan hates all truth, and I think he particularly hates this truth. And so we are paralyzed. Many of us are paralyzed in sharing the gospel. We're fearful of rejection. We're fearful that we won't get a good answer or response that would be belief in Jesus. And so we do what we saw in the drama. We have the bread, and we just hand it out to people who really already have the bread. And anybody who looks different than us, who is of a different religious background than us, who said no to the gospel before to us, we just stay by ourselves and play it safe. I used to pastor in the tri-state area of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York, hour and a half northwest of New York City in the mountains. And where I pastored and lived, there was rock gorges. They used to film Pontiac car commercials on serpentine roads that brimmed these rock canyons of straight drop-offs because it made cars look fancy and quick. If the road over one of those gorges was washed out, and it was night, and I walked up the road, and I saw you coming along. You have no idea. There's no barricades. You have no idea the bridge is out. What kind of a citizen, neighbor, Christian, pastor would I be knowing the bridge is out, you are racing along unawares, and just go, don't want to offend you, man. I know you've got plans. Going to see Grandma. No. If the bridge was out, I would say, the bridge is out! Stop! And I'd get in the road if I had to, so they have to run over me to get 
past me and into danger. We need a believing church. We need a body and bride of Christ who jumps in the lane ahead of people heading to a crisis eternity and says, the bridge is out. Only Jesus can replace the bridge that's out and get you safely to heaven. That's what we're talking about. We can't call ourselves a loving church, church, if we don't do that. We can't. We can't say, Calvary Bible's a loving church, and then willingly close our mouths about the gospel and let precious souls made in God's image go to hell. And so we lovingly warn, we humbly warn, the bridge is out. You don't stand a chance with religion. You don't stand a chance with good deeds outweighing bad deeds. The bridge is out. And then we prayerfully, carefully, lovingly ask some questions. Has anyone ever taken a Bible and shown you how you could know for sure that you're going to heaven, may I? Or, if you were to die, and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Or, there are three circles. There is a W circle, a C plus W circle, and the W circle. That's how every person on earth is broken down into one of three categories. The W circle is people who are trusting their own works to get them right with God. Virtually every other world religion except a biblical Christianity is in this circle. The middle circle is people trust Christ plus their good works. That's the Roman Catholic Church and some others. Sounds like the Anglican Church, based on what I heard in the funeral on Friday. And then there is a sea alone circle, Christ alone. And so you can take that precious person and say, which circle would you be in? And if they say W circle, say, thank you for your honesty. May I share with you Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. May I take the person in the C plus W, say, thank you for your honesty. I appreciate you being real with me. But did you know that Jesus said in, in, in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. And the word he used in the language he was speaking meant transactional language. It was a business transaction. He said, it is finished. It is paid in full. You can't add anything to it. You don't need to add anything to it. And you can lovingly, with the Spirit of God's help, move them to see only circle. But as many as received him, John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You can do that. If you know enough to be saved, you can tell someone else how to get saved and invite them to be saved. That's what we need to do. When was the last time you shared your faith? 
Or have you ever shared your faith? It's time. It's time. Lovingly warn, humbly warm, share the gospel. Don't envy people that you look around. They, you know they don't have Christ. You look around and say, well, she, he drives a better car than I do. His kids are not a uh, disgrace to his family like mine are. Um, he has a generator. I don't have a generator. Don't do that. All that stuff. It's a binary situation, saved or lost, heaven or hell. Forget the stuff. There's no bumper hitches on funeral coaches. Someone asked Rockefeller about Rockefeller in New York City after he died. The scuttlebutt on the street was, how much did he leave behind? Somebody asked someone on the street, how much did Rockefeller leave behind? And the person said, all of it. And regularly, as a saved person, praise and thank God for sparing you the great white throne judgment line and for cleaning totally expunging, erasing, deleting all of your sins, which were many against God. In a group this size, there could be persons here who need to trust Jesus to be their Savior. You've come maybe a while or years, and you think your religiosity is going to get you there, your good deeds. Grandma's faith, my wife's faith. We're a Christian nation, you say. Bahamians are all going to heaven. With Jesus' love and Jesus' authority, I invite you. I compel you. I beg you. Be reconciled to God through Jesus. Tell him you are a sinner in need of the Savior that you believe he died in your place and rose in your place and that he can give you newness of life and forgiveness and purpose to go forward and to serve him all the rest of your days. Tell him that. He'll save you. He'll make you new. For those of us who know him, speak up. Don't go mute with the gospel. Don't see this as a holy huddle. Isn't it so nice? We see all our friends on Sundays, and we have this little holy huddle, and then we go and we never say a word about Jesus on the streets, in the stores, because we're okay, you know. And someone comes in from the outside, and we have this holy huddle mentality, and we go, who's she? Does she really belong here? Maybe she's not even a Christian. Go and meet her. Take her out for a coffee. Ladies, find out. Same with us gentlemen. I love you. I stand in need of a jolt myself. Let's all consider ourselves jolted. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this paragraph with all its gravity and weight. We thank you that you've loved a world of reprobates and rebels enough that you've given us this paragraph to warn. Help us, Lord, to be 
shaken by this paragraph out of our spiritual slumber. Help us to be alert to lost people, compassionate toward lost people, and verbal with the gospel with lost people. Thank you for sparing us the terror of the great white throne judgment and the everlasting terror of the lake of fire. Father, with the hymn writer Annie B. Cousin, we would close this sermon in prayer considering your great mercy that spares us from the just penalty of our sins. Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. The tempest's awful voice was heard. O Christ, it broke on thee. Thy open bosom was my ward. It braved the storm for me. Amen.